friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives. And Andy, you had something for this one? Yeah, I mean, just hard to be topical when we record these in advance, but to remind everybody, I guess... Um, Alex, you, you remember, did, did you pay any attention to the Grammys this year? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, we did an entire segment on how much I hate the Grammys. Well, award shows in general, but the Grammys are included. (laughs) It's a very, very good point. I was keeping you on your toes, making sure you were consistent in your values. Um, speaking of consistent in one's values, WAP was performed at the Grammys and it became all Fox News could talk about for a solid news week. And a mm-hmm. lot of people on Twitter were rightfully taking the piss out of the fact that a lot of conservative news networks and, and personalities were taking this clip of Cardi B and Megan the Stallion mm-hmm. pretending to scissor on stage and talking about how it's the worst thing ever, but they keep playing the video. So, like... Mm-hmm. If you had just left it alone, it would have played once in the Grammys. People would have been like, oh, yes, how delightfully lascivious and and moved on. But then you played it for a solid week on Fox. I'm remembering a Lewis Black bit where he talked about the um, Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake um, thing that happened. And he basically, he does, I'm not going to do it, but he basically does like an extended like five minute bit about how everyone on the news was like, it was like, it's been nine seconds since we looked at the tit. Let's look at it again. That is obscene. Let's look at it again. And then on the floor of Congress, they talked about the tit and there was pictures of the tit. And on the floor of Congress, they said, look at this tit. Let's look at it and say things. Yeah, yeah, that's basically the same exact thing going on now. Um, but by far the worst take I have seen about WAP and and maybe uh, on this phenomenon of performative conservatism in general, frontman John Cooper of the band Skillet, a band we have talked about, albeit not as its own topic on this podcast, a band... I very much loved, especially in my high school um, days. John Cooper of Skillet said, look at what's going on at the Grammys right now. This is exactly the sort of thing that was happening in 1930s Germany. This is the exact same as Hitler making his propagandistic speeches. So for those of you playing at home, the lead singer of a Christian rock band compared WAP to Hitler. Andy, I have thoughts. <laughs> I know you do. Um, Andy, how familiar are you with the Weimar Republic? Um, I've been a lot more familiar ever since you introduced me to Behind the Bastards. Okay, excellent. So the to summarize the Weimar Republic, and I'll ask you if you have any additions to this, um, the... German Republic, prior to World War One, and, you know, even more so prior to World War II, was doing quite well. And 
had this extensive investment in science and in culture and in the furthering of human rights and their and their scientific and psychological studies were some of the most advanced in terms of um, studying conceits of human sexuality and of um, and of queerness and of race relations and of you know economic economic uh, progressivism and it was really with the introduction of fascism into germany that the weimar the weimar republic really fell um to this day people who work in those fields of science and psychology uh and sociology uh opine the burning of all the texts that the nazis did um, because there was so much being studied at the time, and it set back those fields a good several decades. Right, To um, just, just to not put too fine a point on it, but like those sexual sciences have, like we as a humanity has still not regained the depth of knowledge that the Weimar Republic um, pioneered in this and there there's been so much that has been lost and destroyed when Nazi Germany took over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so like to compare a song by two black women about consensual sex to the speeches <laughs> of Hitler. I just realized where you were going with all this. <laughs> to the speeches of Hitler. Speeches which represented a regime that touted white nationalism, white supremacy, white superiority, and, by the way, fuck for the fatherland, and have as many white Aryan babies as possible. In fact, it'd be really great if our German soldiers could, you know, rape and impregnate as many Swedish women as possible because they tend to have blonde babies. You are comparing a song by two black women about consensual sex to that. This is uh, this, this gentleman's name is John Cooper. Yes, yes, indeed. What a catastrophic little wiener. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I offer no defense and it, it seems like every day now there is some white man of fame being exposed for being a massive piece of shit. And I, I don't know if John Cooper's a massive piece of shit, but God, this is one of the worst takes I've ever seen. And he owned it. You know, I have a friend on Facebook. Um, I, I won't name her because she's not like a content creator or anything. She's like, she, she's a, woman in her early 30s with two kids who lives in Wisconsin. Um but she's a friend on she, she's a friend of mine on Facebook and she was posting a thing about like conservatives getting in a tizzy over WAP. Again, a song about consensual sex, but then they'll have Ted Nugent on their programs sure. and I don't know how many people are familiar with the catalog of Ted Nugent, but it includes a song called Jailbait, which is about having sex with a 13-year-old girl. 
And um, there are multiple accounts of Ted Nugent actually doing the very thing that he talks about in the song Jailbait, including a 13-year-old Courtney Love. Uh, Look up that story if you um, are not triggered by such concepts to know just the depths of horrificness that is Ted Nugent. And that motherfucker's on Hannity every few weeks. Alex, it almost sounds like you're insinuating that uh, the word pedophile was retranslated as the word homosexual in the Bible. And I know that can't be anywhere close to the uh, point you're trying to make here. Listen, (laughs) all I'm going to say is never trust the interpretations of a biblical scholar who does not fluently read Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. Sure. To your point about rock stars, though, because that's, that's a great thing, and that's that's kind of the other way I came from it. Like, I have seen Skillet play probably 10 or 11 times because they used to come into Orlando every single year for this big Christian rock concert at Universal Studios. But beyond that, like, I followed the band enough to remember that these guys toured with Alter Bridge they toured with Nonpoint. They played E-Day B-Day, which is a very not Christian rock festival that happens every year in Central Florida. Sure. I You you don't get to tour with fucking Alter Bridge and then make a big take about something that you see being sexual immoral as being evil. Because I guarantee you he's seen some crazier shit in the crowds of the Central Florida Fairgrounds venues that he's played you know that is a really good point i i know you and i spoke a little bit about this uh buffer before this episode and uh something that i wanted to just mention briefly is the christian music industry is still very much that it is still an industry like arguably the biggest christian rock band of the last 20 or 30 years is Reliant K, right? Yeah, I'd say that. Did you know Reliant K are Mormons? Before you told me, I absolutely did not. Yeah, so Reliant K are Mormons and their Christian rock label and like they straight up had songs about fucking Joseph Smith and shit. Uh, Not all of their music, but like they, they would have songs that would reference fucking Angel Moroni and their record label was like, yo... Be Christian, but tone down the Mormon shit because you're not going to be able to sell to run-of-the-mill Protestants if you're talking about Joseph fucking Smith. That's a direct quote. Um, <laughs> but, but, like, yeah, it's it's still an industry, you know? The, the same people fucking hand-wrung over Amy Grant being divorced and doing... Uh, secular album, which had one of the greatest banger songs of the 90s, Baby Baby. And Andy, I am going to formally request a drop from Baby Baby right here. Because that song is a banger and i love amy grant's secular work i don't really listen to her christian stuff but i love her secular work and i don't even mind her christian stuff because amy grant's dope as fuck but yeah like the christian music industry is still a business they don't to pretend that there is extra integrity because 
you are a Christian rock artist is to pretend that, like, capitalism hasn't completely festered away the artistic integrity of every sector of the music industry mm-hmm. that isn't, you know, your local DIY punk scene. And even then, those scenes, ev- like, trust me, if Geffen came by or Interscope or... Like reprise came by with a big enough contract, they would absolutely sell out all like almost all of those bands. Sure, money fucking talks. Do you think John Cooper's just trying to like get in the news at all, or do you think this is just some deeply held, kind of cluelessly racist belief that he has? Probably a bit of both, which is kind of the worst part. Like this, this guy would would pray and preach and proselytize during concerts. And you're like, yeah, okay, we're, we're at a, a Christian rock show. I, I, I get it. I understand. Um, the man certainly seems to hold true to his faith, at least publicly, but also probably, yeah, saw this as an opportunity to get everybody talking about skillet and for, certain demographics in the south plan some new concerts uh once uh covid's over listen if you want to give your money to an evangelical christian who doesn't suck give it to alice cooper (laughs) fuck yeah awesome (laughs) and with that thank you for discussing uh one of the worst musical takes i've ever seen with me that's not all we do here (laughs) That's not all we do on Love-Hate Relationship, but we also do every episode. One of us takes something that we love and talks about it. Then the other one of us takes something we hate equally. And we talk about that as well. And we take your internet relationship questions and we give our perfectly unqualified but well-meaning advice. Yeah. And uh, this time it is my love. So, Andy, if you don't mind. I feel like we've been leading up to this uh, for a minute, because, like, <laughs> I've been thinking... Well, no, because I've straight up been thinking about, like, some of our more recent episodes, and I realize I've been making more and more references to this uh, TV show. There have been be- breadcrumbs. Yeah, and I and the thing is, none of that was intentional. It's just been in my head for one reason or the other. I haven't rewatched the show recently. I should. It's it's a great show, and I'm pretty sure it's on Disney Plus now. Um, because, you know, Fox and everything. But, um... I still want to take a minute to talk about it because I legitimately think it has a lot of really interesting nuances that I want to get into with you. Um, so, Andy, as ever, I like to start with a question and very simple terms, just like you did with Batman Beyond. I'm going to turn your question back around on you and ask straight up as a fan and someone who I believe watched at least at least most some of the show, if not most of it, if not all of it, I truly don't know. Um what can you tell me about King of the Hill? Absolutely. Um, so King of the Hill is one of the driest satirical animated cartoon shows. Um, you know, in the same vein of Simpsons, Family Guy, all of that. It, it, it is an adult cartoon, but it always to me at least came off as so much more tongue in cheek and satirical and, and very dry humor as opposed to the straight up zany antics of Homer Simpson and Peter Griffin. Um, sure. It is a tongue in cheek examination of blue collar, redneck suburban middle-class life 
mostly through the lens of what it is to be a, a blue collar Texan. Um, but at the same time, peppering in a charm and a zaniness and a just uh, a, a delightful array of comedy for somebody who had the patience to sit down and actually pay attention to it. I really love that characterization. Um, And I find it interesting that you put King of the Hill in conversation with a Simpsons or a family guy, because all of those are like family family sitcoms. And when I say family sitcoms, I mean sitcoms about a family. I would Um, argue King of the Hill is about the Hill family as much as it's about Hank himself. No, absolutely. And I would agree with that. It's just the interesting thing is um, so early Simpsons was very hyper realistic. Um, all like all the events happened were super normal. And it was only into like the third season or so that you started getting like some kind of fantastical things. I think very clearly of the monorail episode where at the beginning, like. Mr. Burns is shoving radioactive waste into a tree. Sure. And, like, the sight gag is that camera pans up and the tree has tentacles. That's a good one. (laughs) Like, yeah, no, it's a great bit. Simpsons will play with that a little bit. Family Guy plays with it a whole lot more, where you get, like, Tony Robbins swallowing Peter in, like, a cutaway bit. Like, shit like that just happens. King of the Hill has none of that. King of the Hill... If you took the scripts for King of the Hill and had live action actors do it, you conceivably could without a lot of difficulty. Absolutely. Yeah, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't need any computer animation. At most, there are a couple of episodes that have like some stunt work you would need or the occasional explosion. But like other than that, every single thing on a King of the Hill script could be done in live action without any problem. Yeah. And so it stands out for that reason to me. Um, But I appreciate that. I appreciate you putting it in that context um, because they are all Fox animated shows. um, And they are all kind of, I feel like they're of the same period. Even though like Simpsons is still running, Family Guy ran and went off and ran again. And King of the Hill, you know, did 13 seasons um, all in that kind of animation domination block that Fox used to have. So I appreciate that take. I appreciate the point about it being dry humor. I really want to get into that. But that's a great introduction, and I appreciate you for it. Oh, you're so welcome. So to give a little bit of background, um, King of the Hill. Conceived in 1995 by writer-slash-showrunner-slash-voice-actor Mike Judge following his first run on Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill is a Fox animated sitcom that ran from 1997 to 2010, totaling 259 episodes. It centers, as you pointed out, on the Hill family of fictional Arlen, Texas, and the day-to-day life of straight-laced Hank Hill, voiced by Judge, his pseudo-intellectual and overly confident wife Peggy, voiced by the marvelous Kathy Najimy, um, and their athletically challenged, comic, comedically minded son, Bobby, voiced by the incomparable Pamela Adlon. Um, Judge wrote the initial pilot for the script, but Fox was kind of wary about doing such a 
realistic, straightforward show, especially since right around this time was when The Simpsons was starting to shift away from that hyper-realism that I just talked about. Sure. Um, They brought in Simpsons writer Greg Daniels, who some of you may remember uh, from our Bob's Burgers episode. He was one of the creators of that show as well, um, to do a little bit of work on it. And his his contributions um, took the initial conflict concept from this political satire, like straightforward political satire about conservatives versus liberal values to a really great character driven show about emotional and cultural conflicts. Um, To wit, Judge was so happy with the changes, he gave Daniels a creator credit instead of just the developed by credit that you would normally get for doing something like that. Um, But Daniels' contributions, and to any of you who have watched the show, this will be like life-changing to you. Like you will understand the night and day difference that Daniels added. Daniel's contributions included upgrading Judge's initial conceits for Hank's friends from being a bunch of, quote, snaggletoothed hillbillies, just like basically, basically lucky from the last few seasons, the character voiced by Tom Petty. Originally, all the characters were basically that. Um, He upgraded all of them to what they eventually became, Dale and Bill and Boomhauer and Khan and all of them. Um... He created the characters of Luann and Cotton, and he made Dale a conspiracy theorist. Uh, <laughs> arguably, the best bit of recurring comedy in the entire show was a tweak by Greg Daniels. And that's incredibly impressive. And, you know, I wanted to talk for a minute. So, you know, we mentioned Greg Daniels. He went on to have a... Uh, you know, a career where at least he's still doing Bob's Burgers. And I don't know if you have this off the top of your head. I'm not trying to spring it on you, but I don't know if this was like his start. Or... He started on The Simpsons. He he sure. was like he cut his teeth up writing in the writer's room of The Simpsons. Um, but I think this was the first show that he like co-created. Right. So this became like his big break as a uh, animated showrunner. Yeah. The biggest thing I always think about when it comes to King of the Hill is how the only other thing I know Mike Judge for, aside from the movie Office Space, which is live action, the only other thing I know Mike Judge for is Beavis and Butthead. What about Idiocracy? You know, watched it once and probably need to watch it again, but like doesn't even doesn't doesn't even reach the bronze in my mind of Mike Judge properties. <laughs> I mean, fair enough, but, like, Beavis and Butthead had a cultural impact, but King of the Hill did 13 seasons and never really did poorly in the ratings. Right, and so that's my point. Like, you look at the two things. Look at Beavis and Butthead, look at King of the Hill, especially not really knowing either show all that well, and they almost seem diametrically opposed because Beavis and Butthead was absolutely this zany stupidity, these two idiots, like, doing crazy situations. It was never cartoony in the way Family Guy is, but it was also never that big of a property outside of white kids like me making jokes about being cornholio. Um, sure. and, and then you look at King of the Hill and it is, I would argue it is a much more longstanding, well-beloved property. And so to your point, I think it's, it's very clear just by learning about some of the tweaks he makes, how influential Greg Daniels was. 
And so Absolutely. I guess all I'm trying to say is like people think of it as Mike judges King of the Hill. And maybe that's a that needs to be re-examined a little bit. I mean, yeah, I think you know, he did create it, and of course I think it I think it matters that he does voice Hank. Um, you know, Seth MacFarlane obviously voices a lot of the characters on most of his shows. Um, but if you think about the shows that aren't Family Guy, American Dad and The Cleveland Show, Seth MacFarlane stepped away from both of those shows in a, like, writing standpoint pretty early on. Like, Seth MacFarlane's not really in the writer's... American Dad is still going. Seth MacFarlane's not really in the room for that. Like... People write the scripts, he shows up, he voices the characters, he has his creator credit, because to be fair, he did create the show, co-create the show, and develop its early, like, first few seasons, but he stepped away from it in a big way. Um, Judge and Daniels both stepped away from King of the Hill for a few years, around, like, season six or so, and then came back, they refocused on it, but Judge was always voicing characters on it always so he kind of becomes the face or voice of the show in a lot of people's minds sure i don't know i really wanted to give a moment to greg daniels because i the fact that judge judge did not have to give him a co-creator credit no one was asking him to do that fox wasn't asking him to do that daniels wasn't asking him to do that nobody asked him to do that but he literally was just like my script was good, but what you have done has made this incredible. And in hindsight, when we think about the things that Dan... Like, imagine King of the Hill without Cotton Hill. Imagine it without the Luann storyline. Luann has one of the most emotionally interesting... Never mind funny. One of the most emo emotionally interesting story arcs in the entire show. And imagine Dale is just a snaggletooth hillbilly instead of a conspiracy-minded weirdo who carries pocket sand and says things like guns don't kill people the government does <laughs> yeah i mean that's the biggest one like like cotton hill is probably my favorite character in the entire show because he's just oh my god fucking comedic gold but dale not being a conspiracy theorist whack job it would would probably be the single most hard to handle change about the show. Everybody talks about and and you know the curse is probably in effect because we're probably going to speak this into the universe. People always talk about if you read Made King of the Hill today, Dale would be in QAnon. Yeah, and that's and absolutely I argue that's true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. At the very least, they would make it funny. Um, but as we talk, there is actually, you know, very, very, very early talks of a King of the Hill reboot. Or not reboot, but continuation. Yeah, Mike Judge and Daniels have absolutely expressed an interest in doing, like, an aged-up King of the Hill. Yeah. Like, contemporary times, age the characters up, maybe like a teenage or young adult Bobby, for example. Like, and I'm, here's the thing, I'm not actually, like, mad about that in any way. I do think that it's a hard thing to do. Um, you know, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but, like, there's a lot of things in this show that, with a contemporary lens, haven't aged well. 
Yeah. Um, for one thing, white people that there's there are a number of Asian characters. Um, both uh, like there's Asian American Connie. Um, but there's also like born and raised in Laos, Khan and Min. And they're both they're voiced by um Toby Huss and Lauren Tom. Like they are voiced by white people. They're Asian characters and they're all voiced by white people. John Redcorn is a Native American character, and I'm pretty sure he's he has a couple of voice actors, and I'm pretty sure at least one of them was also white. Mm-hmm. Like, not great on that. Um a large a, a recurring thing about it is that you know Hank is a Republican. He is a like Bush and Reagan Republican. There's a there's a line at, there's a there's a reference at one point about like Ronald Reagan dyeing his hair and like Hank not wanting to dye hair and he's like, "Listen, if Ron Reagan dyed his hair, it was only to show his strength to the communists." Like it's it's yeah like he's a reagan and bush era conservative and that's really hard to swallow in the trump years you know and there's also this like there's a lot of lazy sexism around it um you know i i there and dale being basically QAnon, bill like Bill, Bill's patheticness that like there's a character in the show for those of you who haven't watched it I realize we're doing a terrible job explaining any of the characters eh. Bill is one of the neighbors um, Bill Dotrieve and he's he's never gotten over his divorce like he was he got divorced like 13 years ago and he never got over it and he's highly depressed like I don't know my daddy spanked me every day from when I was nine till I was 16 and I turned out okay Bastard. And they make a... There's a whole episode about Bill, like, wanting to kill himself because he's so depressed. And it's played for laughs. Like, Hank tries... Hank is like, we need to watch Bill and make sure he doesn't hurt himself. But, like, Bill keeps trying to kill himself, but he's really bad at it. So he jumps off of his, like, first story roof and, like associated shit like that but he's just really really terrible at killing himself like that doesn't play well today like i can't see gen zers being like these are jokes about suicide like and that's not necessarily a bad thing either like some of that stuff hasn't aged well and i think about a reboot and i'm like also bill fucking stalks peggy Yes. Like, Bill is in love with his best friend's wife and creeps on her like, cuts pretty her hair, constantly. Like, cuts her hair behind her in that sort of, like, pull scissors out of his pocket, snip a lock off, and, you know, play it off nonchalantly kind of way. Yeah. No. Yeah, so... It doesn't. It doesn't work in that. Sorry, you were about to say. Well, I was just going to say. You know, I can't see a, a King of the Hill continuation series having very much appeal at all to anyone younger than you and I. Anybody who is uh, not younger than being in their mid to late twenties. But I also absolutely believe that the the targeted audience of the of the show would be the people who watched the initial run. Sure. And you know what? That's and that's fair. So I really don't know how a reboot would work in a contemporary landscape. In a lot of ways, I I tend to trust Mike Judge because overall I tend to like his work. Like I don't love Beavis and Butthead. I like it okay. I think Office Space and Idiocracy are 
pretty good movies. They're not life-changing. They're not incredible, but they're pretty good. Sure. Um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, I trust him, but, and I just kind of like, uh, I don't know about it. I, I don't, I don't think this one needs a reboot. I'd probably check it out if it, you know, if they made it, but I haven't even finished. I'll, I'll be honest with you. This is a case where I haven't even watched the whole show. Like the last few seasons, I kind of fell off and I don't regret that. Uh, I'm fairly familiar with what the, some of the stuff that happens, but like, this is a case kind of like The Simpsons, where I go, these are the prime episodes that I absolutely watch. I don't think King of the Hill ever had a real dip in quality. It's just there's a certain point where, like, times change and the characters don't tremendously age. Like, they age Joseph a little bit um, to make some jokes about it. But, like, other than that, there's not a whole lot. I think the character, I think the kids age a total of, like, two years over 13 seasons. Sure. Um, but like, even then when I would just catch a random episode other than being like, oh, Luann got married. Oh, Bobby and Connie stopped dating. Like other than minor updates, like, oh, Nancy stopped sleeping with John Redcorn. Like other than little updates like that, there's... You know, it, it is a fairly drop-in kind of show. And even those later seasons, when I have seen scattered episodes of them, they hold up pretty well joke-wise. Sure. So, okay. So, so talking about the, the run as it exists, what else do you love about King of the Hill? Sure. So, you know, that was a show that I watched religiously in reruns, um, kind of alongside The Simpsons. Uh, I really think the the heart of the show, the greatest thing about it, my favorite thing about it, are the characters. You know, like, let's take Hank as an example. I've already mentioned this, but he's a Bush and Reagan loving Republican who is too much of a coward to teach his son sex ed. He thinks it'd be better if his wife stayed home instead of having a career. And he doesn't see what's wrong with asking his Laotian neighbor if he's Chinese or Japanese. Like, in a lot of ways, Hank is... I I don't like to say that he's a dumb redneck. I really don't. But he's very much like a middle America conservative who has never questioned much about his values. But... He's also a character who is just, like, at the end of the day, despite those flaws, he's decent at the end. Mm. He accepts his corrections on all of those matters when he's confronted by how they affect the people around him. When he, when Peggy decides to quit working so that she can look after Bobby full-time, and Hank is so excited about it, but he sees how absolutely miserable she is being a full-time housewife, he's like go back to work. It's what makes you happy. Like that's more important. Like for all the shit he has with Khan, where he does not understand him culturally at the end of the day, he's like, I don't hate you for your race. I don't dislike you for your race. I have problems with you because you're kind of a jackass and their relationship works on that level. Like they have respect for each other, but they don't like each other. So do you think there's any notion that Hank Hill is the best father in animated comedy? Uh, I do not believe that. 
Uh, and I, I'm thinking very particularly, I know there's a comic, I think that you might have shown me, yes. where it's like Bobby working as a psychologist and he's counseling Chris Griffin and Bart Simpson. And at the end of it, after like they talk about how abusive and terrible their fathers were, he calls his dad and he's like, thanks for being such a great dad. Hank is a decent dad to Bobby. He is. Overall, he's an okay dad, but he still is, like, he still gets disappointed at the fact that Bobby's not more into sports or isn't more masculine. Mm -hmm. um, he gives Bobby shit because, like, Bobby wants to, like, give his best friend Joseph a Valentine's Day card and is so threatened by... Bobby's lack of masculinity over that. Like, he's... In many ways, Hank is a punk bitch of a father <laughs> who wants... who wants to foist his values onto his family. Admittedly, when he gets called out on it, when he sees the results of that, when he sees how that messes with them and makes them unhappy, he does relent. But I don't think Hank is the best father i think hank is a good father okay fair enough i think i think bob belcher might be the best father in animation oh yeah yeah that's a good that's a better answer for sure if i'm gonna kiss them i don't want to go after you guys i'll go last i'm fine with that we're not kissing jimmy jr yes we are yeah because at the end of the day bob Bob will will admit that he doesn't understand his children, but he will relentlessly support them. Even when they're being ridiculous, he will support them because it's what they need and need to be happy. And he will discipline them when they need, and he will take care of them when they need, but he is he but but when Gene decides that he wants to enter a table setting contest, or talks about finding men attractive, he's like, oh my god, Gene, don't talk about this. But not because, like, he, not because there's there'd be an issue with Gene being gay, it's because he's just like, I don't want my 11-year-old son to talk about being attracted to anybody at all. So, Bob Belcher for best father in animation. I'll take it for sure. I know we're I know we're coming up on like forty minutes at this point, so just something I do want to touch on. I, I'm talking about characters, and the a key conceit, and I know we've just talked around these characters in a lot of ways, but every character in the show is flawed, but every one of their flaws makes them intensely human. The worst people on the show are characters like Cotton Hill, Buck Strickland, and Khan Supanusenphone. For reference. Khan is Hank's father. He's a World War II veteran. He was verbal. I'm sorry. So yeah, Cotton was Hank's father. He's a World War II veteran. He was injured in World War II. Like he lost his shins, but he never stops talking about it. He loves talking about how he killed fitty men. Uh, <laughs> he lies a lot about the things he did in the war. Like he did some things, but he he exaggerates a lot. He's a horrible misogynist. He's an incredible sexist who is verbally abusive to his entire family. To wit, he has a child with his um, much, much, much younger um, second wife. And he decides he's going to name him Good Hank. Because the first Hank he just wasn't happy with. Like, 
Cotton is a terrible person. Cotton also has some of the greatest lines in the entire show and some of just the best comedy. Come here, Dad. You're acting crazy. Back off. I didn't want you. I wanted a boy. Buck Strickland is Hank's boss at the propane dispensary or propane shop or whatever you want to call Strickland propane. The place where they sell Um, propane and propane accessories. Exactly. Buck Strickland is a serial philanderer and like terrible businessman and general piece of shit. He's also also funny as fucking hell and just like the ridiculous situations he gets into. He also has a lot of heart. Like when he thinks that his wife killed his mistress, he decides he's going to frame Hank for the murder, which is sweet in a twisted kind of way. And it it saves his marriage. Like when he frames his employee <laughs> for the murder of his mistress because the police thinks it was his wife, his wife thinks that's so sweet that they end up back together. There's a there's a weird Shakespearean poetry there. Sure. And you know, Khan is a materialistic asshole. Khan is a like an immigrant from Laos who um, came to the U.S., worked really hard, got educated, got a high-powered, high-falutin job, and he's kind of a dick, and he's very materialistic, but he, like, can never get the things he really wants. He can't get, like, the membership at the fancy country club because he's not fancy enough for those rich Asians, but, like... He can settle with the, like, real and true, genuine friendship he gets with these blue-collar white people in the neighborhood. Dale has pocket sand. Dale's (laughs) comical and ridiculous. (laughs) Dale is an idiot who would absolutely be a Trump supporter in today's times. But he's also, like, his wife has a 14-year affair, and he is so oblivious to the idea that his wife could ever do anything against him And he's a great father to his son, who is clearly a product of that affair. Like, obvious to everybody with eyes, except for Dale, who's just like, He's great at football. He came out of my wife. He is my son. I do not question it. Yeah, that's a good point. There's so much heart to these characters, and there's so much to love about them. Even when I find large-scale aspects of them shitty. And to me, this is a show that inspires empathy, like real and deep empathy for me. Like if I'm talking to a conservative and I struggle to see their point of view, sometimes I straight up think of them like a King of the Hill character. And I can like at the very least give them that little bit of the benefit of the doubt that makes me see a, see them as human. And even when someone is a shit heel, they're still human. And there's room for connection there. And King of the Hill shows that. Mike Judge is very liberal. He's very upfront about that. And he wrote a show about a conservative family of generally decent people who, when faced with situations that conflict with their Texas conservative values, struggle with them, sometimes to hilarious effect, but then ultimately are... You know, they acquiesce because at the end of the day, they choose to be decent. I think there's something beautiful there. I think you're right. I think there very much is. Uh, King of the Hill was the one show I was allowed to watch. (laughs) I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons. I wasn't allowed to watch Family Guy. Um, 
you know, when I was younger and that was still something that like could be controlled for me, but King of the Hill would come on and I didn't even like it because it was boring and I didn't get it. And it was, it was weird to me that it was a cartoon and it wasn't crazy and silly and wacky like the Simpsons, but it was the one I was allowed to watch. So I watched the most of it up until the point when I was finally able to be like, you know what? No, I'm old enough to make this decision. I'm going to watch the Simpsons and South Park and all this shit. (laughs) (laughs) So no, I have a deep appreciation. I have a special spot in my heart for King of the Hill. And I think you did a lovely job illuminating why it is such a wonderful show. So thank you for that, dear boy. Thank you, my friend. Shall we move on to your topic? Yeah, let's go right ahead. Uh, Something a little different. Um, I did something I knew you've done in the past and I sat down with my wife and I was like, what do I hate? We talked, (laughs) we, we talked through some things. We, we talked through some ideas and weren't really getting anywhere. And it was like, okay, I'll, I'll play some video games on it. (gasps) Wait, I know what I hate about video games. Dear boy. We've discussed at length your own personal drop-off with video games after the GameCube era. So what sure. can you tell me you think of when I say crunch culture? I would have to say I think of people in gyms doing crunches, which are a very stupid exercise that aren't really very useful. <laughs> When you say video game crunch culture, I'm like, I don't know. Is that a fetish? Is that uh, is that a is that a like Japanese video game? I don't know, dude. I've never heard this term before. Please, that's. I mean, I'm pretending I haven't read your notes, but like, indeed, indeed. Please Fair tell enough. me more, Andrew. Well, I mean, that makes it perfect for anyone in the listening audience who really doesn't even have as much of a grasp on video games as you do and does not know what video game crunch culture is. And I'm happy to tell you about it and why it's fucking awful. Sure. Go for it. Video game crunch has become a game industry term to describe a period of mandatory overtime in a game's development cycle. So in other words, you you work in the games industry, you're a developer, you're creating, you know, the next great shooter game or something, or, or just really any game nowadays. It is a, it is a, uh, just an aspect of the business that you will put in weeks, months, even years of overtime and, um, more than 40 hour work weeks in order to make this project happen. If a studio feels it won't be able to deliver in time for a deadline, the only answer people can think is, okay, well, we said the game's coming out April 2021. The game's coming out in April 2021, and we don't give a shit how long you have to work to make that happen. And this practice has understandably led to employees working excessive overtime, sometimes even up to 100-hour work weeks, living in the office, facing health issues, and inevitably, massive job loss. Uh, like once the game is yes. done, they lose their jobs? And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that mm. uh, a little bit more, but like, we're going to call this hate video game crunch culture. The real culprit here, I do understand it, is video game advertising hype. And the fact that a CEO mm. will absolutely exploit hype work his customer work his uh his his laborers 
to the bone and then still set an expectation of hype so high that no product could actually meet it. So then the game is perceived as a failure because it wasn't the shiny brick of gold that the CEO promised. And then somehow it's the fault of the employees who worked themselves to death making it in the first place. But I feel like the best way to talk about this is to get a little anecdotal and describe a few of the more famous incidents of this in recent memory. But I can't state enough, this this is I'm a excited. prevalent problem in almost every aspect of the video game industry. <laughs> All right, piss me off, Andy. Piss me off. My body is ready. Piss you off. I'm going to piss off some of our dear listeners. The first thing I want to talk about is how EA killed the Mass Effect franchise in order to crunch for their new game, Anthem. Now, just the the the, the slightest bit of, gra- of uh, groundwork... Mass Effect was a a trilogy of games that uh, was this sci-fi action-adventure shooter. It was real controversial for being a game that you could have a sex scene in. Think kind of Grand Theft Auto in space, kind of, a little bit. But the point it, the point is it was incredibly well beloved by myself, by people I know, by by science fiction gaming nerds the world over. I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite store on the Citadel. And EA um absolutely tanked the franchise. Now, friend of the show, Matt Colder, is a huge fan of a different game called Destiny. And all anyone needs to know is that Destiny was another online science fiction shooter. But this one was incredibly, insanely popular, and it rocked the gaming industry. It became this giant, amazing thing. And all the other mainstream studios go, holy shit, we need a Destiny competitor. We need something like that game so that people buy our game and we make the money off this incredibly popular thing. So this leads to giant company of the gaming industry, Entertainment Arts, wanting to release a game that's basically Destiny, only better, of course, because it's EA's version. And they called this game they called this sure, game like Anthem. Did. I don't know how much of it was supposed to be an Ayn Rand reference. Oh god, <laughs> I read my mind. In order to make Anthem, EA gutted the development team for Mass Effect Andromeda, which was the fourth game in the beloved Mass Effect series, which you'll note uh, 30 seconds ago I called a trilogy. (laughs) That's because Andromeda is so goddamn bad, it might as well not be uh, a part of the franchise. EA takes this team of people who have made these three games, these three successful games, these three profitable games and go, no, we need half of you to go over and make this thing because this thing is our hot new shit product. The rest of you guys, uh, whatever, just, you know, work double shifts, work double shifts and make the game. That's how this works, right? This caused a crunch in the making of Andromeda, leading it to be an utter abysmal train wreck tire fire. But there's more. EA tried to make Anthem such a revolutionary, redefining gameplay experience that it was still much too difficult to match the expectations set, even with an increased staff. So you get two crunches for the price of one. And you get two games that 
are regarded as really, really bad and forgettable when either both of both or either of them was supposed to become the great new thing in science fiction adventure video games. (laughs) And I'm throwing a lot of names and concepts, but like I'm trying to think of a good movie trilogy. Trying to think of a movie trilogy. Everyone agrees the first three are good. You know what? Fuck it. It's like if somebody took the uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Controversial ending to the third one and all. And then. Okay. Synecdoche Films somehow divorced itself from Christopher Nolan and said, okay, no, Chris, we demand you make a fourth Batman because we want more Batman games, but we're going to cut your budget in half and we're going to split up your film crew in half because we also want to make this movie, which is going to be our version of Joker. (laughs) Appropriately mixing my Batman media. And then, and then both those movies are completely abysmally awful. And everyone, and everyone's like, wait, how did we fuck this up? You fucked this up because you tried to make two games for the price of one. No single game developer has become more synonymous with video game crunch than telltale games. And for several years, telltale was kind of this, this indie studio. They made much smaller adventure games that were kind of like oh choose your own adventure only in the context of this one set in the walking dead universe this one set in the game of Thrones universe this one's choose your own adventure but it's batman and these were incredible wait so did they do the arkham games they did not do the arkham games that is a company called rocksteady but they did make a completely okay. separate batman game which by all uh all accounts was was very very good and so they're making these games they're getting more and more popular it's it's this very fun niche thing where it's like oh, okay i don't have to be this amazing shooter i just have to choose which of these three voice options do i want to pick and can i do a quick time event i can do that this is really fun i like this game and it became abundantly clear um as they became more and more influential and successful that the only actual reason Telltale was working as a concept was through relentless crunch. And so this would be the prime example of, okay, let's make a game. Let's make this fun new game. Let's make this game where it's guardians of the galaxy. Choose your own adventure. Okay. The game came out. Great. Let's maximize our profits. How can we do that? Oh, we can uh, lay off, Everybody who worked on that game. We're the guys who own Telltale. We're fine. We're going to hire a new development team and have them make the next game. And it'll be a different uh, concept, but it'll still be easy enough to make. We'll repeat this process. Nobody gets hurt except for the people we just laid off, right? I mean, sure. (laughs) As you can imagine, uh, once the general public realized what was going on, the company died nearly overnight. And that's literally the case because there's an account from one employee who says, yeah, I, uh, I was working my regular 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. shift. And then when I woke up the next morning, I found out the company had been completely gutted and shut down. So Telltale went bankrupt oh and uh, we don't get their games anymore. 
And like the thing is, you sit there, you All sit right. there, and you're like, why? Why if these were so popular? And the thing is, it's because they kept making more and more and more faster and faster and faster. And like, if you were kind of observing the life cycle of this company, you were sitting there going, oh, wow, another Telltale game. Huh. The last one came out like, what, three months ago? Yeah, about three months ago. Damn, they make those really quickly. I I guess they're really easy to make. When in actuality, they're as hard to make as nearly other video game. And we're working our employees to death and then uh, maximizing profits by, you know, letting them go. Oh, boy. It's a it's baked into the industry. That's the biggest problem. Pick a tentpole video game over the last decade and you'll hear stories of insane crunch. You know, the most recent one that came to mind was this game called Cyberpunk 2099. This game was in development for like eight years something crazy like that but it was still promised to be the like as close to virtual reality as you can get you can do literally anything you can be this cyberpunk commando badass cyborg and just go through our city and do whatever and so the company that made cyberpunk had to then create a city and about halfway through the process they went oh shit this is we can't actually like make a fully fledged city and have this play on a game console. It's too hard. It's going to take another 10 years to even do it. Uh, shit. We've been making this game for eight years. It's supposed to come out like in six months. Fuck it. Everybody's working a hundred hour weeks. And then the game's still a bomb. You know, the last of us two Detroit become human, which is a game. I know you yourself have actually played. All of these Mm -hmm. creative endeavors were achieved by CEOs and lead designers promising the absolute moon because you want sales, because you want interest, because you want hype. You want to make it so that they buy your game and not this other game. So you tell everybody that your game is going to be amazing. And then that's only the only reason you get anywhere close is because you then turn around to your development team and tell them about hustle culture and tell them about self-sacrifice and tell them you don't get in the video games industry unless you love the video games industry. So buckle up, buckle up. This is what you wanted to do, right? So work that 60 hour week, sleep at your desk. We need to get this done by quarter four next year. That hurts. Like that hurts my past as a teacher. (laughs) Like that, like you get in, you do this cause you love it. Right. Like you don't want to let people down. That like, hurts me as somebody who's worked, you know, in the, uh, in the film and TV industry, you know, the working, well, working 16 hour days on a non-union gig because, Hey, you want to make a movie, right kid? Well, it's like, okay. I actually feel like some of the, at least the part of this that is involved with like, Okay, you mentioned at the top, you wanted to title this video game Crunch Culture, but it really kind of comes down to marketing and, like, advertising. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, like, it's it's that advertising of a particular release date. And I feel like some of that comes over from movies, 
you know, movies get a release date and it's and it's scheduled and part of production design is actually plotting out. OK, how long does it fucking take to film this movie? How long does it take to do this level of CGI? And what are our overseas studios going to be able to do with that? How long does it take to film this? What are the actors schedules? What are the director's schedules? What, how long is it going to take to edit? Which editors are faster and can do this deadline? Um, how long is pre-production going to be? Like, these are questions that go into the making of a movie. And they're questions that in a movie studio, like, they're going to ask ahead of time, hey, are we going to be ready to go? Like, what's a safe date right. for us to pick? And you'll hear stories about the occasional movie that, like, isn't ready to go until, like, just when it's ready or might, you know, go into... Reshoots are actually very common in movies, but you'll hear stories about, like, more reshoots than were expected, right? for example. Um, it's rare that a movie is delayed because of production reasons, is what I'm trying to get at. I want... Are, are video games harder to quantify in that way? What? Like... Because it very much seems like the marketing teams are trying to do this like they do movies... But can the production teams work the way that movies and schedule well, the way and they can't? Do? And that you know that actually leads into a really good point that I was you know going to bring up comparing this to movies. Your average movie is a two-hour experience, maybe three mm-hmm. if it's the hot new Christopher Nolan tentpole shit. A TV show yeah. is a 10 to 12 to, you know, say you're doing a, uh, a run-of-the-mill crime CSI show. Okay, you've got a 24-episode season that's 24 hours of content, but it's very copy-paste. A season of your standard, like, 23-episode, half-hour, hour, like, CW TV shows. I think I remember, like... Someone talking about, like, the production time on a CW show like Supergirl. Uh, I don't even know if that was CW. But, like, Supergirl's production time was, like, all told four to six months for a season. Sure. And, and you know, you're dealing with tangible assets. You You have a leg up on video game design because you have real actual things. Maybe only some of your scenes are CGI as opposed to the entire thing being CGI. You know, movies is a, is probably the best comparison more than TV shows. An average movie is no more than probably two and a half hours of, of content. And that still takes, you know, months and months and months to create and develop. Your average game, especially your average, like, big giant, landmark game has this expectation that it's going to be 10, 12, 16 hours of content and story and creation. So, you know, it is, Mm -hmm. it is a much bigger um, product to be created. And so, you know, that's why people say, okay, well, it takes years to make a game. It takes months to make a movie, but the level of, scope is still just so much farther beyond but people advertise it like you say like the same way you make a movie you get trailers you get um you get play testing videos where it's like okay here's a 20 minute video that shows you how the thing works 
but that's being made by the the development team. And if that doesn't look good enough, they're going to just animate it like a movie and pretend they're playing it so that people, you know, want to buy the thing. And it be it, it absolutely becomes this just very frustrating, very like hard to assign problem where it's like, how do you stop advertisers from trying to sell the product beyond what they can reasonably promise people? So I do want to ask, since you mentioned, since you were talking about telltale games, um, you said that once the general public kind of found out about what they were doing, the company died very, very quickly. Do you like what caused that? Because it, was it people boycotting it? Was it like investors pulling out? Like it was exactly investors pulling out. Um, okay, so so the idea here is that you create enough backlash, people stop people stop investing in the company. Because because really, you know, like how does how does the how do they make money? They make money not by selling games, but by getting investors. You get investors by selling games because by selling games the investors get their money back so it might seem like a one-to-one -one, but that middle point of investors is a really important step um that can easily get missed right it's 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 amazing to me that this is an actual case where the general public gave enough of a shit like and 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 that it's a mantra on the show for me at this point. I don't <laughs> want to seem cynical. I really truly don't. I'm really impressed that like people cared that much because it's hard to get people to care enough to actually take action on something. So this gets enough bad press. I assume it probably gets enough bad Twitter press. It gets enough people, you know, criticizing it that the investors pull out and the company dies which in certain ways does suck for the developers because like at you know they're out of a job there but it it creates an idea of consequence maybe this is because i'm outside of the video game culture andy you can tell me more you you, you can say a little more to me if i'm wrong about this but like i feel like i hear more about people bitching that games are delayed or that games come out and they're glitchy and need patches. I know that's a recurring issue in video games as well. Right. Like a game gets rushed, comes out, and it's fucked up, and they basically need to wait for some kind of downloadable update. Dad, when do we get to the ride? This is the ride! So that it actually works the way it should when you bought it. I hear so much about that, so much more about that outside of this video game culture than I do about people actually trying to put any pressure on EA or on any of these other developers to not crunch people like this. And, you know, it's it, it becomes a fine line. You know, it's people care enough to learn that, oh my God, you, you shouldn't have your entire 25-person staff all working 100-hour weeks. Oh my God, here's this letter from a woman saying, I haven't seen my husband in a month because he's been working on, you know, making Detroit become human and they won't let him come home. People care about that. People empathize with that. People like, you know, 
say they're going to vote with their dollars and not buy this game, especially if the game is something where it's like, oh, well, this wasn't even actually as good as you promised. What the hell? This isn't even as good. And you like did very shitty, uh, illegal, or at least it should be illegal business practices to make that happen. I'm not going to buy games from you, Rockstar. But so many more people just talk about how like, oh my God, it's been eight years. Where is Cyberpunk 2099? Oh my God, Last of Us 2 just got delayed another two years. What the hell? And it reinforces this this idea with developers that is like, no, listen, our products are on a timeline. We need to be able to work with this thing and we need to be able to make it this quickly. So people, people care. I argue people don't care enough. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard to see. One could, one could sit here and rack your brain trying to decide, okay, who is at fault here? But the answer is there's so much fault. There's so much fault everywhere. There's fault with the consumers who aren't patient enough to allow companies to do this ethically and who don't properly de-incentivize this kind of abuse. There's the companies that, like, will straight up put this kind of abuse, uh, like, like put their profits over any any real desire to do this kind of abuse. There's the, uh, or any real desire to avoid this kind of abuse, rather. There's the entire conceit of gig economies or contract work where you can hire people, work them to the absolute bone, and then just dump them afterwards. There's the removal of the conceit of unions. Like, there's... Guarantee you, they're at, like most video game companies are up there with union busting. Because imagine if these developers unionized. Imagine if there was a strike during development of, last, of, of the next Last of Us game. Imagine that, Andrew. And imagine what would happen. Like, there's so much blame to go around. Even just like that general hustle culture that... It's not even just in video games. It is in film. It is in tech. It is in corporate. It is in finance. It is in all this shit, man. Like, yeah, I mean, this is a systematic one. I don't have an easy fix. The, you know, the final note, I'm very excited to get to our question, but the final note, this is a problem and this is a mass manipulation. Like you talk about, you know, there aren't video game unions. It's a field that has not had any success unionizing. And it is also, you know, we, we've talked about video, uh, we've talked about, um, electronic sports gaming, you know, gaming has become a, it's become sports and movies and TV and escapism all wrapped up in one massive property unto itself, non-unionized, but demanded in every single way. And people look at the success stories and go, okay, we just need that and all this hard work will be worth it. Forgetting that even the success stories, people are still working themselves to the bone. And the idea of like the the biggest thing, the worst thing is company, major companies and developers recruiting video game designers and going, hey, you want to make video games, right? What could be cooler? You're going to do what you love. Congratulations, kid. Now here's a 70 hour work week to start. 
Blizzard, you know, my this, this is the last thing. Uh, Blizzard is the company that made all of the Warcraft games, and you know, didn't they also do? Um, oh God, what was it? Not um, Warcraft, Starcraft, Overwatch. They did some like um, Devil something. Diablo, yes. Diablo, Diab. They, they made the Diablo games. That's what I know them yep. from. Blizzard is arguably the greatest Titan company in, in the video game landscape. Mm. And I don't think this was what I'm about to say was because of crunch. I think it might've had to do with, you know, COVID-19 problems or, or whatever the reason Blizzard recently had a mass company layoff, something like 50,000 50, employees. And the severance package was, Something like three months of pay, a year of benefits, and a $200 gift card to Battle.net, which is Blizzard's online video game store. Ah! (laughs) Thanks, I hate it. I hate it so much. I hate it so, so much. You should too. Alex, can we move on to the question? Yeah. You read the format, so I think I'll read the question. Um, but uh, this came from the Meat Space. Yeah. So, well, not the Meat Space. This came from a real life listener, like a real true human being who, like, granted, we didn't like physically talk to or anything, but like, an actual person who like wrote to us and like took time to send an email. So question from this individual. Uh, and, and just for context, we already responded to this person. Like we sent them an email with our thoughts because they sent this question like six weeks before this episode drops, or maybe it's like eight weeks. Um, so they have been, they've had their answer. Um, but, uh, we want to now discuss that with you. Yep. So I'm a 26 year old woman. I was in a relationship with a 29-year-old man. We broke up eight months ago. We had a three-year monogamous relationship, and it was long distance. I'm from London, and he's from Glasgow, Scotland. We'd meet up and live with each other for months on end. Christmases with my family, etc., chat on the phone regularly, and we messaged every day. I didn't have any reservations, and I trusted him completely. Other people would often comment on how cool our relationship was because despite the distance, we had trust and, I thought, full commitment. Eight months ago, he moved in with a female friend of ours in Scotland as the UK went into lockdown and he lived alone. He messaged me saying he had a dream that the three of us were romantically involved together. It quickly transpired that this was his way of asking for an open relationship. I said no. Then he gaslit me and said we had always been in an open relationship, but because I have bipolar, I I assume that means bipolar disorder, uh, I was too ill to remember agreeing to it. He said that I shouldn't be upset because he's been doing this the entire relationship and I never noticed any changes in him, so why change what isn't broke? This was the first time any hint of psychological manipulation had occurred. I had to message all of my friends and ask them if I was crazy, if I was in an open relationship, and they were confused and unanimously said no. I instantly broke up with him, and just weeks later he married the girl, who I also knew and had trusted. The wedding was flaunted on social media, and people even messaged me congratulations because me and the girl look very similar. This is how I found out about the wedding. Fast forward to now, and I've been on a few dates with new people, but I don't know how to bring up this baggage without putting them off. 
Dates have politely asked, and I evaded the questions with hu- with humor. I'm worried they will see me as damaged. I also have the existential question of how I can trust my own judgment when this happened to me. I never suspected a thing, and it made me realize you can never truly know someone. Wishing you all the best. Um, you know, for context, this person wrote to us and said that they actually like regularly listen to the show. So, holy fuck, Andy, we have international listeners right? who like give a shit what we have to say. I'm touched and honored. So, right? Cheers to you. Um, we so we obviously responded, and and, and we're gonna keep you anonymous. No worries. So let's come up with a name, Andy. Yeah, so romantically uh, disenfranchised here. Uh, And gaslit. I was about to say. And English. Indeed. Uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Kind of mad we used Jane Eyre already. Um, (laughs) If only we'd know. That's all good. Yeah, you know, you never can tell. Um, hmm. Who's someone who, like, was maybe in be someone entangled in a long distance relationship or someone who was lied to by a partner or you got anything Andy I'm I'm running a little blank. You know lied to by a partner um we we're, we're massive X-Men fans there's there's <laughs> several problematic um romances in the Marvel comics uh, industry. We've already used Emma Frost. We've already used Emma Frost. We haven't used Rogue. Okay. Because I love him, but this is some Remy LeBeau shit. Okay. We got Rogue. Old Apocalypse won't like that you helped me. You better find some place to hide. I'm here for it. We got Rogue <laughs> and we've got uh, Gambit. Yeah. Oh, Remy. Uh, I, I don't even want to name this other person who he married. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I have a really I I could name them, but that's really nerdy of me. So, oh, are you going to talk about the uh, random person from the Assassins Guild who Gambit married? That would be um, Belladonna. Was supposed sir. to marry Belladonna. I don't remember. <laughs> I know that was in the animated series, and like, eh. eh. But okay, so we have Rogue, we have Gambit, and we kind of have Belladonna. All right. Andy, I read. Do you want to go first? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. And so, you know, I want to say, first of all, Rogue, thank you so much for sending us this question and asking for our unqualified advice. Uh, And, you know, I also want to say that I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. It sounds incredibly hard, and we really want to treat this question with respect. I would say the first thing you need to do is recognize that what Gambit did to you, what your ex-boyfriend did to you, is completely unacceptable and emotionally abusive, and you didn't deserve it. Fuck yeah. You know, there is a there is a learning experience to this, but I don't think the thing to learn is that you can't trust anybody. It sounds mm. like you were incredibly open. And that's a good thing. And you know, willing to go out on an emotional limb to try and make a long distance relationship work. That's commendable. That is something that people do and, you know, is something natural especially uh in the quarantine covid times and, and especially you know for uh millennials and younger long distance relationship isn't a crazy thing but it does leave you vulnerable to somebody misusing you and your time 
I think you need to be honest about what happened to you when you get close with the next person. You know, there's, there's, there's no point in trying to cover this up. There's no, I I don't see really anything good that could come out of springing this on somebody you've started a relationship with. This is the kind of thing that it is best to just get out in the open kind of examine, Hey, I've got this bit of emotional baggage and I'm owning it by talking to you. And I'm trusting you to be aware of that and be kind and considerate with my feelings, knowing that I've had this problem in the past. You know, it's important to recognize this experience. It might leave you with some new defense mechanisms that weren't there before. And the best way to get around those is to be open with a partner and not, um, not shut down and not bristle too badly when something is perceived as an abuse of your trust. You know, how can you trust your own judgment by trusting yourself? And I get that that's going to be a lot harder now, but that's trust. That's, that's the whole deal of the thing. Unfortunately, you know, I want to reinforce that your trust is a good thing and it's something to be celebrated and you can rightly be a little more guarded and a little more cautious and make your walls just a little harder for people to scale over because you have been hurt. I know it's hard during a pandemic, but, you know, maybe try to make sure that your next relationship isn't long distance if you can avoid that. Or if you can't, you know, give somebody a little extra time to earn getting into your heart before you let them into that space. You don't have to swear off relationships just because of this one admittedly very awful experience, but it might be a good idea to step away from long distance relationships in particular. You know, you deserve love. You deserve forgiveness for yourself. And if you need to hear someone validate you, we're here to do that. Love is wonderful. Love is a many splendored thing. All you need is love. (laughs) And it can also lead to incredibly deep feelings of hurt and sorrow and sadness. And I really hope your next experience is for the better. Alex, what you got? Oh, Andy, that was so well put. It's almost like we answered this question a minute ago and you've like <laughs> had time to think about it and stuff. Uh, normally, we're, normally we're so off the cuff, but with this one, we wanted to be really, really careful with Rogue and like give her a good answer. Um, so <sighs> Rogue, my, my initial thought in answering it, like you ask two questions here, um, basically at the end of this entire story um you ask about like bringing it up to dates and you also ask how you can trust your own judgment um two very different um entangled but different questions however they have the same answer for me and that's that you need to own this situation in a way that you haven't yet um this is part of your story All of us have fucked up parts of our stories, weird, unpredictable, sometimes awful experience that, you know, had someone, you know, presented it uh, in a novel or a movie or, hey, even a TV script that eventually needs to be punched up by Greg Daniels. Um, Editors would just reject it for being, you know, too on the nose or too unbelievable. You're pursuing new relationships, which is good. That's what you should do. It means baggage. You you call out. It's baggage. 
And you need to carry that baggage until you find someone who's willing to carry it with you and probably add their own to the pile. Um, you know, first date. I'm not telling you you need to lead with this. Like, that. that it's... <laughs> Nobody talks about their exes on their first date. Nobody talks about that bullshit on a first date unless it's asked for. Um, I haven't been on many dates in my life. Uh, and it's been a very, very long time since I've been on a date with a new person. Like, it's it's just not really, uh... I was never one to just, like, ask out people I didn't really know. Like, sure. I, I'm not going to pretend that's it. Like, just about everyone I've ever dated I was friends with ahead of time. Um, but But here's the thing. If you're just getting to know somebody, you don't need to lead with this. But if things get serious... You know, if things start getting serious, um, you need to be willing to bring this up and, and you can set a scene for it. You can sit here and go like, hey, listen, I need to tell you about a few things that I haven't talked to you about, about previous relationships. Um, you need to also be willing to listen to any baggage that, you know, your potential new partner has. That, that's another side of it. You don't know what other people are bringing to the table. You've got trauma, yo. But you also don't know what trauma other people have. They might have none. They might have something you've never expected. So when things get serious, that's something to talk about. And, and hey, again, on a first date, second date, third date, like I, I, I kind of feel like by the third date, you should start talking about some bullshit um, if you haven't already. Like some people say after the third date, it should be sex. I say, you know, during the third date, there should be trauma. Um, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so... It's, that's something to think about. It will scare some people off. Like if you, if you spread this wide, it'll scare some people off. Those people aren't worth your time beyond maybe a little company for a while, you know, have a nice dinner, you know, have a roll in the hay. If that's, you know, something you need, I don't want to assume anything about your sexuality. Um, it may mean you need to be patient and keep putting yourself out there, but that's also love. Love is putting yourself out there. Looking for love is putting yourself out there. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to find. And often persistence and hard work and heartbreak. So own it. Own this. It's part of your story. Just like if you have any traumatic stories from your childhood. If you have a parent who you have issues with. If you have... um a really bad experience in your past. If you have a phobia, if you have a trauma, those are part of your story too. This is just part of that. Um, as to your existential question, you know, you again, you need to own this. We as human beings have a terrible habit of beating ourselves up for not having already known lessons that were never taught to us, either by the forces that forge us or by the experiences we haven't had. You can't beat yourself up for not knowing all of this. This is an experience that taught you some things. It taught you what gaslighting looks like. It taught you that people you put a lot into, a lot of time, a lot of care, a lot of love, a lot of investment, those people can hurt you. Hopefully it didn't teach you anything quite so cynical as you can never truly know someone. Like, for me, because I'm an existential asshole, um... I personally think there's some truth, you know, to the idea that you can never truly know anybody all the way, 
But that isn't because, like, they're hiding their darkest bits from you and everyone will let you down. That's because experience is unique and subjective and messy, you know? Again, I love King of the Hill because it makes me see the humanity in people I disagree with fundamentally. I will never understand that point of view. I will never know it truly, but I can see the humanity in it. You're never going to know anyone fully. You never knew anyone fully. You might not know yourself fully. Very few people do. So how could you know anyone else fully? That's not the right question to ask. You need to stop beating yourself up. You need to forgive yourself for being with someone who ultimately wasn't good and not recognizing it sooner than he and your circumstances allowed. You were in a long-distance relationship. You didn't see this person every day. You can forgive yourself for not seeing the signs when you don't see the person every day. You need to trust yourself. Trust yourself with just like a touch, just a little bit more caution and care, but that should come from increased self-respect, not paranoia that you're going to get hurt again. Fear. Or trauma. Like, trust yourself. You do the work. Go to therapy. Probably going to be helpful. Um, I know I say that a lot, but it's truly the best advice that, like, most of you will get. Um, And at the end of the day, fuckboys are going to be fuckboys. It isn't your responsibility to fix them or to guard yourself so callously that you lose out on the possibility of new love. You will encounter more fuckboys in your journey. I promise you. Maybe you'll date them, maybe you won't, but you will meet more fuckboys in your life. It's just going to happen. You will almost certainly get hurt again. You might get close to somebody and they're going to let you down in a whole nother way. You just got to try not to get hurt the same way or hurt yourself by working so desperately to never take a chance again. Rogue, you... It's actually really appropriate that we went with Rogue, Andy, because ultimately this is a person who is worried about getting anyone about letting anyone close to her. Sure. You know, it's the tragedy of Rogue has always been that she feels so deeply and loves so deeply, but the first time she kissed a boy, she put him into a coma. It's she she can't she can't touch she can't be close the way that she wants to be close and you this rogue who i'm speaking to right now you can be close to someone you have that in front of you but for you it's not because you might hurt them it's because you're afraid that they might hurt you You're afraid that your baggage will cause them to leave. You're afraid that you might trust somebody and then they're going to hurt you again. And the thing is, in both those cases, that's probably going to happen. You can't avoid it. But you got to let it happen and keep trying smarter, more intelligently, with more knowledge with more, I don't even want to say intelligently, because that implies that there was something stupid about you before. Like, no, there wasn't. You have more knowledge. Use it. But don't confuse knowledge and fear. Ever. 
And thank you for yeah. writing to us, and thank you for listening to us, and hopefully our unqualified advice is somewhat useful to you. You seem to like it when we sent it, so thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Rogue, for calling in, writing in, you know, putting putting your your hands. Thank you for sharing what has been bothering you with us, so we could try and help out. That you know. It, it's something it, it's one of the things that we were most excited for about this podcast was being able to help fans like you you know the only way to lose when it comes to love is to not actually play and you deserve better than that and you it 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 can't be overstated what happened to you is valid your pain about it is valid but I have all the faith in the world that you will be able to move on and trust and love. And, you know, hopefully you write back to us in six months and talk about how good your new relationship is. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you talk about how you haven't had a relationship for six months and you're happy as can be. I don't know. But thank you for writing in. If you have a relationship question and you want our perfectly unqualified advice like Rogue did, as you can see, we're very happy to give it. We're overjoyed to answer your questions. <laughs> you can send those in to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read that. This is the proof. Yeah, straight up. Like this email came in and we were like, oh my God, we got an email. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're dorks. Um, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, mom. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Uh, you can keep up with what we're tweeting about. You can send your questions there. Um, we often take questions from relationships.txt. Um, that is the Twitter handle at Reddit Chips, R-E-D-D-I-T-S-H-I-P-S. If you happen to be scrolling there and you have one you want our take on, please send it our way. We'll welcome that as well. It doesn't have to be your questions. Anything from the internet, anything from you, anything from your life, we'll take it, yo. We like the questions. Um, yeah. Absolutely. You know, we, we talked about movies in comparison to how they're easier to make than video games. And I talk about movies a lot on my other podcast, Cult Fiction, that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. You can find Cult Fiction everywhere you can find Love-Hate Relationship. Or you can find me, Andy Bowell, at JoVoCop2113 on Twitter. That's right. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. This is not our longest episode, but it is one of our longer episodes. Uh, and we appreciate your listening in. As ever, please tell your enemies.